Book Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month and so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies and on our web www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. And I'm Matabatab. How are you, Gory? <laughs> well, on a sunny day, it's wonderful. <laughs> this cheerful hour, Andrew Marshbanks, cheers us with the great choices in Wordsworth books, fiction and non-fiction. And for the first time, we review an app as John Hanks cheerfully a flutter about Steve Wonder's Sorry, Steve Woodhall's Butterflies of South Africa. This beautiful and engaging app is also one of our giveaway prizes today. Vanessa, Vanessa Levenstein is cheered by her chat with Mick Heron about his dark, politically incorrect, poetic and hysterically funny London Rules, the latest spy thriller in the Slough House series. Legal Eagle police reservist and writer Andrew Brown found William Boyd's The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth searingly clever and humorous. Philippa Chaffetz raises a chair for any time Ile de Pain's celebrity cook Liesel Mulder's new cookbook from that famed cafe emporium in Neisner. Mike Fitzjames, mean as ever, unsettles your nerves with three new thrillers. And Cindy Moritz was much moved by the beautiful and illuminating tale of the Holocaust tattooist and the woman he loved in The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Finally, Peter Soule was cheerfully shocked by Robin Rennick's How to Steal a Country, which describes the vertiginously rapid descent of political leadership in South Africa. Do stay with us for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 250 Wordsworth Books vouchers or the stunning Steve Woodland's app, Butterflies of South Africa. Andrew Marshbacks, a big bundle there from Wordsworth Books. Hi, Gary. Well, thanks. I've got some fantastic books that are coming through the bookshop systems at the moment. The first one, I think I may have mentioned this to you last time, is the Wilbur Smith biography. Now, look, we all know some people are great fans of Wilbur Smith, some people aren't, and some people read them as a child, etc. But he has had a fascinating life, and he is an amazing person, made fortunes out of uh, writing books that people want to read. What's wrong with that? Let's say. So that's Wilbur Smith on Leopard Rock, A Life of Adventures. And he has had some very interesting things happening in his life, uh, how he got started. He uh, used to live in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. He worked in the income tax department in Zim. I mean, as far from the Courtney's as you can get. So that's Wilbur Smith on Leopard Rock, A Life of Adventures. And it's about 290 something rand. Then I have two other new fiction here. The new Kate Moss. Well, Kate Moss uh, specializes in old religions, old Templar things, mysteries around that. And she set her new book. It's got one leg in Franschhoek, where a prominent Dutch person is part of the plot uh, for the Templar plot. But, of course, most of her stuff 
originates in France. And it's France 1562, as the war of religions begins to take hold. A Catholic woman and a passionate Huguenot find themselves united in possession of a priceless relic, which we assume, I think, is the Holy Grail, and set upon a quest to uncover a long-buried secret hidden in the burning chateaus in the Pyrenees. Well... It's a wonderful adventure story. She writes beautifully. She was out at Franchuk uh, about a week ago. That's Kate Moss, The Burning Chambers, and it is 299 Rand. Another fiction that's come, also historical. This one is slightly more in tune with the history, real history. Madeline Miller, she wrote a song a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, called The Song of Achilles. It was a great smash hit. People loved it. I loved it. We all read it. It was absolutely beautiful. She's got a new book called Circe, and this woman is a wonderful author. She brings the past to life. The Greek myths are there in front of you, and the people are living. It's an absolutely wonderful read, and I can recommend it to anyone. That's Madeline Miller, Circe. She was the author of A Song of Achilles, and it is 285 rand. Then I have to mention there's a new Christopher Hope. Now, Christopher has written a lot about South Africa. He is born South African, living in the UK. And he wrote a book a while ago called White Boy Running about his upbringing in South Africa, how it happened, where he was brought up, etc., etc. And it was from that point of view, the old apartheid society. Now he's written a book about the new South Africa. He's driven his way through. He's gone around the country. He's searched for old apartheid scars, I would say. And he is trying to say, is Mandela's country here? Has it happened? What's gone wrong? Where has it gone wrong? And it is a fascinating book, fascinating reader. Uh, It's called The Café de Move On Blues in Search of the New South Africa, Christopher Hope. A great book. And anyone who likes good writing, good South African writing, Christopher Hope is it. Can't recommend it enough. And the last book I've got here is like... uh, a political soothsaying called Who Will Rule in 2019? And Yan Yan is trying to read the tea leaves to see what is going to happen in the elections that are on next year. And he has taken into account Ramaphoria. He has taken into account the DA and the problems in the DA and the EFF, etc. And he's tried to make a cultured guess, an educated guess as to what is going to happen next year. And I'm afraid he's hedged his bets a bit because he says there's going to be much more coalition governments. So if that's not copping out, I don't know what is. But this is a really entertaining read, a good political, I would say a thriller, really, as to what may happen, what might not happen. It's good reading. Who will rule in 2019? Yan Yan Hubert. And it is 245 Rand. That's all we got. Thanks very much. Keep reading. John Hanks, Flutter of Butterflies. Yes, Gory, thank you. I'm not going to review a book this month, but instead an excellent app I have on my iPad, which I'm sure will be of great interest and use to those of you who like to identify and learn more about the extraordinary diversity of plants and animals we have in South Africa. Whenever I go into the bush for an extended trip to a new part of the country, I take with me a box full of field guides. And if you're anything like me, it often takes a long time paging back and forth to name with confidence the species concerned. Take butterflies, for example. 
South Africa has 672 species, kaleidoscope of brilliant colors and shapes that metamorphose from an egg to a larva to pupation and to the eventual, often spectacular, emergence of the adult. The task of identifying not just the adult, but also components of this life cycle will now be much easier with the production of a new app entitled Steve Woodhall's Butterflies of South Africa. Woodhall is a butterfly enthusiast and photographer and is the former president of the Lepidoptera Society of South Africa. He has authored several books on butterflies, including Field Guide to the Butterflies of South Africa, on which this app is based. Designed for the identification of all butterflies likely to be seen in South Africa, this is a superb production, which not only is easy to use, but really does work too. The app is packed with outstanding photographs and an authoritative but easy-to-understand text in a most informative introduction with just about everything you want to know about butterflies in general, including their classification, how they feed, what they eat, reasons for the coloration of butterflies, such as the cryptic patterns to avoid predators, and breeding cycles and behavior. The butterfly's time as an attractive adult is usually short compared to his total life cycle, but this is when they are most active, searching for a mate with accompanying sexual displays that form a major part of butterfly behavior. Steve Woodall has encapsulated this characteristic perfectly by saying butterflies are essentially sex machines. There is an excellent introduction as to how to go about watching and identifying butterflies, which I would urge everyone to read if they're just starting to get interested in what is undoubtedly one of the most diverse and fascinating orders within the animal kingdom. The section on using the app is easy to follow, summarizing the amazingly comprehensive layout for each of the species' account. The smart search feature, which separates butterflies by their size, habitat, color patterns, and monthly probability of a sighting, is superb, enhanced by the compare feature, when two species are close in appearance, and the most useful my location feature, which helps you to narrow down your search results for a particular species even further. At 299 Rand, this app is really good value, and I have no hesitation in urging anyone who wants to identify and learn more about butterflies to get a copy. The title is again Steve Woodall's Butterflies of South Africa. It's developed by PDA Solutions and produced by Penguin, Random House and Straight Nature. Vanessa Levenstein, you were lucky enough to chat to by thriller writer Mark Heron. London Rules by Mick Heron, published by John Murray. London Rules is the latest in the Jackson Lamb award-winning thriller series. Set in post-Brexit, the misfits of Slough House are outcasts, yet more appealing than anyone in the establishment. Joining us today in studio is author Mick Heron. Welcome. Thank you, Vanessa. How did the recent terror attacks in the UK shape the narrative? An interesting question. The novel prior to London Rules, which was called Spook Street, opens with a terror event in a shopping centre. A number of young people are deliberately targeted and killed by a bomber. And the same week that that book was published, the actual bombings happened at the Manchester Arena, where 23 young people were murdered uh, by a man with a bomb. And that made me wonder quite a lot about my approach to writing about terror events. I would hate to be accused of simply using them for purposes of entertainment. What I'm doing, I hope, is addressing the issue of what it's like to be 
a citizen of a city and at the same time be on the, the front line of this war that has been brought to all of us over the past decade or so. Well, gratuitous was certainly not a word that ever came to mind, but awareness, it certainly did create an awareness. The characters, how true to life are they? In many ways, I hope not very, because some of them are really quite awful. Uh, I love it, writing about Jackson now. I found him a wonderful companion on the page, but uh, I'm not sure I'd like to be stuck in a room with him. Well, the Slough House team are similar to the terrorists in their bumbling antics. They don't quite get it right all the time. Yet, they are more likeable. Do you think that psychopaths and heroes are different sides of the same coin? They could quite easily be. I mean, the Slough House team, the Slough Horses, are all people who want to be heroes... They all set out hoping that they were going to be James Bond. I mean, this is why they joined the intelligence service. For one reason or another, their careers have all been sidelined. They're desperate to get back. They're desperate to to serve and be of use. Uh, But circumstances thwart them pretty much every turn. No one in the book emerges clean. Everyone has a dirty secret. Yes, yes. I think that that's more interesting than writing about squeaky clean Heroism. I think that failure is a lot more interesting than success, in the same way that sadness is a lot more interesting than happiness. It provides an extra depth. And if I, as a, an author, aren't interested in the characters I'm writing about, I couldn't hope that readers would be either. So I take those angles towards the characters. Slough House, for all its drawbacks, the characters, they are not successful. It's a far more authentic space. The characters are far more real and less self-serving than the characters in Regent's Park. Do you agree with that? I, I would agree. I mean, I think that uh, the suits, as Jackson Lamb calls them, over at Regent's Park, those who are in charge, the administrators, they tend to be more one-dimensional because of the self-interest that they have. They're all working to their own agendas, and that agenda is personal advancement a lot of the time. That's kind of one-dimensional, so those characters come out as being less fully rounded. As I say, the, it's the failure that makes people more interesting. Grotesque and offensive, Jackson Lamb is the Falstaff, Dickensian character we both love and hate, yet we often see just a flicker of humanity. Are you particularly close to him? You said he's your companion. Is he your alter ego, perhaps? <laughs> I hope not. I'll leave that to other people to decide. He's a man of some depth, I think, but I deliberately don't pry too deeply into those depths. I would hate him to turn out to be a character with a heart of gold. I think that would weaken him. But he is a man with a moral code, and what I like doing is putting him into circumstances where he's forced to operate to that um, moral code, where he has to take some kind of action rather than just slump behind his desk being foul to people. Further books, a possible TV series? Um, There is a TV deal bubbling away in the background, and I hope it will come to fruition sometime in the near future. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. A gripping, brilliant read as a standalone, always part of the entire series. If you want a special book, treat yourself and get a copy of London Rules. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Vanessa. Andrew Brown, you've loved William Boyd for a very long time. I have. A fabulous writer and a fabulous new book from him. It's called The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth. It's short stories, which is unusual for me because I don't normally like short stories. But you wrote a book of short stories yourself. But I wrote it, yes, but very personal, revealing <laughs> book of short stories about my own experiences. But I've battled to, to read other people's short stories, and I must say this book is, is different for me. So let me tell you what I felt about it. 
I was very moved recently because the world lost a writer who, for me at least, had a major impact on my, on the way I came to understand the power of humour in writing. So Tom Wolfe passed away a little while ago, and his Bonfire of the Vanities, that wrought a fundamental shift for me in my appreciation of the role of how the quirky and the light-hearted can carry a serious work of writing. That to laugh is not necessarily to ignore and that laughter can come from insight and delight can come bubbling up from the recognition of one's own embarrassments. So for me, William Boyd's new work, it's described as The Guardian as mercilessly amusing and I think that's a very good description. It's a collection of short stories with a lengthier title story, The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth is the main story, but each one is quirky and fun and clever and ultimately exposing. And these stories place before us an array of flawed but optimistic characters struggling to find their way in the world, some of them relying on guile, some of them pretension, but all of them rather hopefully naive. And each one gets thoroughly skewered on Boyd's rapier. But of course it's our own vulnerabilities that are actually being deftly exposed. There's something youthful about Boyd's writing in this book. My mother, who's a great reader, says she finds J.M. Kutsia amusing. Uh, perhaps you need to be over 80 to giggle at that kind of gritty teeth irony. But Boyd's characters feel young. Without relying on any obvious modern devilments like cell phones and apps and references to that, it's just the writing. And the Financial Times in a review referred to a certain sprightliness in the writing. And I think that's apt because as you read the book, you have that sense of Boyd as a younger man smiling wryly and whipping along with his, with his writing with a spring in his step. And perhaps it's also that the characters are fresh and the stories don't feel that they need to follow any routines. So as entertaining as the book is itself, so is reading some of the reviews and the reactions of reviewers to the work. And each reviewer that I read has in some way struggled with exactly that combination of humor and seriousness. So one reviewer doubted whether the whimsical nature of the story could carry the weight of its significance. And the Telegraph, the British Telegraph, seems to have been absolutely outraged by the idea that Boyd should write such a light book. They called it half-baked in their heading. And buried in that review is an accusation that Boyd took the money and ran. And I think that ambivalence is very revealing. It's completely unfair, but it's very revealing of the expectations of reviewers, I think. For me, the humor allows one to elect how seriously you want to take the messages of failed hope and doomed romanticism. As always, Boyd presents these characters with utter compassion. There's no evil or malice in it at all. And while the laughter may feel cruel, it's only because the pain is so real and our pretense so unrelenting. So whether it's the doomed Bethany Melmoth herself who blunders along hopefully from one personal disaster to another, or the seriously creepy Ludo Abernathy who plays his sexual games, Boyd never really throws his characters to the wolves. He may hold them out close on a long rope, though. So The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth, it's a work of playful brilliance, I think. If you want heavy meaningfulness, reread Disgrace at your, if you dare. But if you're in the mood for something sprightly, something clever, find a spot in the sun and join Boyd in poking some fun at yourself. 
Philippa Shape, it's good recipes from Ilda Per in Nysla. Anytime by Lizzie Mulder, published by Quiver Tree, a lovely cookbook to look at and to use. Lizzie Mulder is co-owner of the Destination Nisner Bakery and Cafe Ildepan with her husband, Marcus Farbinger. He's the master baker, Lizzie the head chef. She shares recipes for all times of day, all certainly enjoyed any time, all easily replicated by the home cook. The choice of quality, fresh, local ingredients are advocated. Her philosophy is to create food that is simple, uncomplicated and wholesome with unique flavour combinations. Lizzie treasures childhood memories. She grew up in a foodie family. There's a family time section on her personal favourites from family and friends. Lizzie loves to travel, returning to the kitchen with an abundance of new ideas. Bagels with salmon trout and crispy capers recall breakfast on the way to work at Rialta Restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The chef was Jodie Adams, a big inspiration to Lizzie. Her cookbook, Hands of a Chef, is the most used of all the cookbooks Lizzie owns. The delicious duck liver mousse with black cherry jelly on the lunch menu is a variation on a dish from the book. Superfood smoothies were learned during a yoga teacher's training course in Bali. A month of a raw vegan diet was surprisingly creative, unique and delicious. Good with Berries was inspired by a cooking class in a coconut plantation in Kerala. It features again in the tea time section as a filling for a tart. Lizzie spent three years of her childhood in Texas. The food she most enjoys when she visits America is Tex-Mex and Mexican. Chili spiced beans and corn and sour toast with avo sour cream and cheese, topped with a poached egg for breakfast. Buy a fish tacos for later. Shakshuka and best falafel came after a trip to Israel. The pure Vida wild rice and quinoa salad, multi-textured, full-flavored, is a tribute to the Costa Rica attitude to life. Pura Vida means pure life. The term is used to say hello, goodbye, everything is great, everything is cool. The sticky pork belly steam buns is inspired by the mind-blowing little buns at Mama Fuku in New York. David Chang is one of Lizzie's favorite chefs and she admits to have eaten through the entire menu at Mama Fuku. From memorable stays in Sicily, sole in Valtini with citrus fennel salad, classically made with swordfish, Lizzie chooses sole for its lightness and delicacy. Then there's roasted cauliflower, agrodolce, an intense sweet and sour sauce. Lizzie fell in love with a sauce served with sea tuna and icy coffee granita for breakfast with brioche for dipping. The tea time temptations are irresistible. Lizzie's mini light orange flavored Gugelhofs are a variation of the classic Austrian vanilla and chocolate cake that Marcus's mother bakes for each child on their birthday. There's an excellent section on the best of bread baking. What else from this iconic bakery? Marcus and Lizzie met 20 years ago when they were both doing a bread-making course in America. And another, Lizzie says it's her favorite chapter, is jam-packed with sauces, salsas, relishes and dips, all made ahead, guaranteed to deliver a punch with every meal. 
It's a collection of recipes that I will enjoy using again and again. Oh, it's Mike Fitzjames. He's doing his best to shred our nerves. Hello, Gorry. At last, a new Elizabeth George has appeared. And as usual, it is a stunning read. There is no better writer of detective novels today. When a member of Parliament contacts New Scotland Yard and requests an investigation into the suicide of a constituent's son, the Commissioner decides to kill two birds with one stone. First, the MP will owe him a favour, and second, he will be able to get rid of Detective Sergeant Barbara Havers, a constant thorn in his side. Now he hands the investigation to Havers and places her under Detective Chief Superintendent Isabel Audrey. Audrey is unhappy to leave London, and because she is anxious to return, she overlooks certain uncomfortable facts. Now the case is opened again, and this time it is Detective Inspector Lindley who sets out to Ludlow with little more than a week to save the Met's reputation and Barbara's job. A more sinister pattern is now disclosed. What a fantastic read, so satisfying. My second choice is The Mayfly by James Hazel. A mutilated body discovered in some woods, a murderous plan from the past, and a reckoning 70 years later. Charlie Priest, ex-detective inspector turned London lawyer, is retained by entrepreneur Kenneth Ellender to investigate his son's murder. Priest is no ordinary lawyer. Brilliant but flawed, this case will push him and those close to him to the very edge. Priest faces evidence right back to the last desperate days of the Second World War. In the ashes of the Holocaust is concealed a secret so deadly it threatens to destroy the very structure of the modern establishment. As Priest races to uncover the truth, will he be able to prevent history repeating itself? This is a ripping read, fast and furious. My final choice is The Cutting Edge by Geoffrey Deaver. This is the latest Lincoln rhyme thriller and a brilliant addition to the series. A young couple arrive to collect their engagement ring, 1.5 carats and almost flawless, from their diamond cutter. But instead of a joyful transaction, they, together with the cutter, are murdered. Someone has decided to target couples at the start of their lives together. Now Lincoln Rhyme and Amelia Sachs are drawn into the investigation, but the killer is now hunting down any witnesses who might help them. He has only one thing in his mind, and that is to destroy. Rhyme and Sachs must use all their skills and determination to halt this rampage. Pacey, intense, it's gripping and almost impossible to put down. That's it for this month. 
My choices were The New Elizabeth George, Mayfly by James Hazel, and The Cutting Edge by Jeffrey Deaver. All the best till next month. Ah, oh, the Elizabeth George. Cindy Moritz. The incredible story of the Holocaust to tourist and the woman he loved. Lael Sokolov, who for years kept secret his job as the tattooist of Auschwitz, said that as he tattooed her number on her left arm, she tattooed her number on his heart. She was Gita, whose surname and family history Lael only learned after the war ended and the two had walked out from the hell of Auschwitz-Birkenau, where they had been incarcerated for almost three years. Lael lived almost all his life with the guilt of being considered a Nazi collaborator for accepting the job of tattooist. But after Gita died, he felt he could not carry the burden of their past alone and decided it was time to tell their story. Enter author Heather Morris, who met Lael in 2003. By then, an elderly gentleman who had made a home for his family in Melbourne, Australia. She was told he might just have a story worth telling. So began the process of self-scrutiny for this Holocaust survivor in a show of trust for the woman who would share his story with the world. The tattooist of Auschwitz tugs at your heartstrings on a few levels. It is a real-life love story of a man who meets a woman in the most unlikely circumstances and knows that they will spend the rest of their lives together. It also provides a detailed and confronting first-hand account of daily life over three years in the infamous Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp, where Nazis did their utmost to dehumanize millions of people who had regular, fulfilled lives before they were snatched away, either branding them with a number to replace a name and sending them to work, or not bothering to brand them and cremating them right away. And like most Holocaust survival stories, this is a demonstration of hope and wonder. That Lael never lost hope is beyond comprehension and that he managed to escape the fate that befell millions of other, no less worthy people is also incredible. A large part of what helped Lael to survive was his job as tattooist, as he meant he technically worked for the SS and that he had benefits that most others did not his own room and a bed, a little more food, and some freedom of movement. As much as it pained him to scratch numbers into his fellow victims' arms in indelible ink, he also knew that it could be the key to his and other prisoners' survival, giving him access to valuables that he was able to exchange for food to keep them alive. There were many times that he could have died. In fact, the young SS officer who was charged with watching over him at Auschwitz once asked him, Are you a cat? As he seemed to have at least nine lives. Truth is often stranger than fiction, and in this case, the author made sure to check and double fact-check against all documentary evidence the details of what the elderly Lael told her. The incredible gem in this true story is that Lael never did lose hope, even in the darkest of times, having witnessed the most heinous incidents of man's inhumanity to fellow man. What's more, he provided a glimmer of hope for others. 
As he and Gita lay holding each other in secret behind the administration building one day, they spoke about believing in something. I have no problem with you keeping your faith, Lael says to her. In fact, I will encourage your faith if it means a lot to you and keeps you by my side. When we leave here, I will encourage you to practice your faith, and when our babies come along, they can follow their mother's faith. Gita replies, Thank you, my love. You make me want to believe in a future. As Heather Morris wrote, The Tattooist of Auschwitz is a story of two ordinary people living in an extraordinary time, deprived not only of their freedom, but their dignity, their names and their identities. And it is Lael's account of what they needed to do to survive. It is surely a valuable addition to the millions of life stories that ensure the persistence of memory on this significant chapter of history. What a story. Peter Soul, Robin Rennick's How to Steal a Country. How to Steal a Country by Robin Rennick is published by Jacana and dubbed a thriller. Robin, now Lord Rennick, is no stranger to South Africa, having served here as British ambassador at the time of the release from prison of Nelson Mandela. He has returned on many occasions and has written two other books, one on the end of apartheid and the other on his great friend Helen Sussman. Rennick has an easy writing style, making the book a concise one. It is only 200 pages. Difficult to put down, especially when he gets into finer details of state capture. My reaction when I'd finished reading the book was to sit back and, while contemplating the nine years of unheard-of kleptocracy, ponder the damage done and ask myself how the ANC allowed this to happen, when they must have known about Jacob Zuma, and they must have known what he's like, having spent all those years with him in exile. Rennick's style is succinct and clear, causing the mind to boggle at the open and barefaced cheek of each of these people, particularly the Guptas, who quite openly and brazenly went about looting the SOEs, which turned out to be sitting ducks, made easier by some of Zuma's appointments of supine lackeys to the Section 9 institutions meant to protect the Constitution and the citizens of this country. Rennick begins his tale with the Mandela presidency, followed by his uneasy relationship with Mbeki when he was president, Mandela that is. He describes Zuma's fall as deputy president and how he fought back to defeat Mbeki at Polokwane and be elected president of the ANC. The show was on the road, and those in the inner circle were able to act with ingenuity, audacity and impunity as they set about looting the public purse. It was at about this time the Gupta brothers arrived and were quickly sucked into the system, showing that they were not slouches when it came to tenders and the lining of pockets or the appointment of pliant members of cabinet. An incident at Oatambo Airport illustrates the point. The Guptas, who were beginning to feel the heat, decided to make their base in Dubai, and, it is reported, attempted to export a suitcase filled with diamonds through the Oppenheimer-owned private terminal at Tambo Airport. A bright customs official declined to load the suitcase, 
And shortly after that, the Oppenheimers found that their license application to continue operating a terminal for private jets was being held up by the then Minister of Home Affairs, Malusi Gagaba, following pressure from the Gupta-aligned operators. After a while, senior figures both in the ANC and the civil society were beginning to feel uneasy about what was happening and quietly expressed their concern. They questioned how a large section of the party could change from being would-be liberators, prepared to make great personal sacrifices for the cause, and that now they'd become predators. This is not the party of Mandela, Tambo and Susulu, said they. Rennick pays tribute to the press, the Fourth Estate, and the judiciary for keeping the values of the Constitution alive during this time. Of course, it all ended in tears. Zuma has been removed from office, and the Guptas are either in Dubai or in India. There's a major job of reconstruction to be done, and Rennick puts his money on Cyril Ramaphosa, whom he believes will be able to save South Africa. Rennick's fascinating book takes us all the way through the nightmare we lived through, and it is recommended. For me, Gory Bose Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. 